You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Kiss me goodbye and write me while I'm gone. In today's episode, you'll hear from Norman Fruchter and Robert Macover about their collaboration as filmmakers and instructors at the Free University of New York, a 1960s experiment in radical education. Fruchter presented a course called Film Form, Propaganda into Art, and Macover offered a workshop with the aim of producing a film collectively under the title Filmmaking. This led to the creation of the film Dog Burning at Noon, a short clip of which plays during the episode. The episode also includes a discussion of and short clip from Macover and Fruchter's 1966 film Troublemakers, which chronicled a group of young activists who worked with a predominantly black community in their struggle against poverty and low-quality housing in Newark. The discussion was moderated by Jakob Jakobsen, who organized Interference Archive's current exhibition, Free Education. Rooted in an examination of the history of the Free University of New York, the exhibition aims to generate conversation within our community, across generations and socioeconomic realities, about what it looks like to reimagine possibilities for education. I was um, one of the editors of a publication called Studies on the Left, well, it was always an argument whether it was a journal of the new left or not. It was a journal of academics who were sort of leaning new left, but they were leaning very carefully. <laughs> and um, one of the editors was Stanley Aronowitz, and he was one of the founders of the Free University, and I was a film nut, crazy about film, had worked uh, in England uh, when the French New Wave came out and uh, was particularly interested. In this period in New York City, there was a lot more um, experimental movie houses than there are now, and a lot of them were showing uh, both American and European experimental films, which um, I fell in love with. And so Stanley asked me, would you teach a film course? And I said, yeah, I would. I'll try to get a bunch of experimental films and show them to people, and we'll talk about them. And that's what happened. Um, I had been to Cuba in 1964 as part of a group of 81 so-called students, which most of them were not students, uh, um, to break the travel ban. Uh, travel to Cuba at the time was illegal, and we all went through a complicated business of going to Paris and from Paris to Prague and then from, from Prague back to Havana in order to avoid the authorities and and get there. And um, one of the people on the trip was Alan Krebs, who went on to found, was one of the founders of the Free University in New York. So when we got back, I assume, I don't actually remember the, the conversation and the occasion, but I assume that that's how I got into the Free University, is that Alan must have contacted me somehow. And in my case, it was to teach a course, not about films, but to make a film. So there was a group of, I don't know, seven or eight students. Um, and the assignment was for each of the students to come up with an idea for a short film that did not require synchronous sound, because we didn't have that equipment, that was inexpensive to make uh, and that the costs of could were small enough to be defrayed by contributions from the, from the students who were taking the course. The courses didn't cost anything normally, but in fact we had to pay for the 
film stock and the laboratory development. And so everybody submitted their idea for a film. Uh, Each one presented their idea to the group. The group discussed, voted, and decided on this particular story, uh, which was inspired apparently by a news item that some organization had actually done this. It was in the height of the Vietnam War, and somebody had threatened to burn a dog uh, in protest to the napalm and and in protest to the war. Uh, And uh, we we made that movie, and you'll see the movie. It's fairly self-explanatory, and you'll see what we did with it. Um, and I was surprised, you know, at how how it how well it worked out. <laughs> Every night before I turn out the lights to sleep, I ask myself this question: Have I done everything that I can do to unite this country? Have I done everything I can to help unite the world, to try to bring peace and hope to all the peoples of the world? Have I done enough? Have we, each of us, all done all we could? Have we done enough? Um, I read the other day of a group of people who um burned a live dog as a I've never heard anything like that, and I don't believe anything, and uh, I'd better not even make any comment about anything so stupid. God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her. I think we've fixed them uh, throughout the night with our artillery fires, and which is what we wanted to do in addition to defending these people in here. And we hope to uh, have them stabilized so we can kill them. We can't have a, uh, an army of highly paid Hessians. Just isn't the American way. We fight because we must fight. Some men are killed in war and some are wounded. And some are never leave the country. And some are stationed in the Antarctic. And some are stationed in San Francisco. We must have the courage to resist. Or we'll see it all. All that we have built, all, all, will be swept away on the flood of conquest. Remember that equity is fine and discrimination is bad, but the federal government has first of all got to survive. It was never screened, as far as I know. This was the premiere. <laughs> a little late, but nonetheless. Students for a Democratic Society started in the late 50s, early 60s, and soon became the largest um, on-campus uh, student mobilization um, against the Vietnamese War, um, 
part of the civil rights movement. Um, started out really as a um, attempted to find a kind of third wave between uh, uh, traditional democratic party politics and what remained of the old CP and the old left, uh, but was quickly overwhelmed by the need to oppose the war and organized the first couple of very large demonstrations in Washington against the war. And at a, at a certain point during the 60s, there were campus chapters being organized so quickly that the national office could not keep track of what was going on at all or supply the new campus chapters with what they needed. Um, but a, uh, a youth movement which is based on campus has a problem when people graduate because what do they do then if they want to stay involved? So SDS developed a number of different solutions to that. And one of them was an organizing wing, a community organizing wing, which tried to develop um, projects in both um, white working class areas and black areas across the country. One of them was in Newark. Mostly in the north. Hmm? Mostly in the north. Yeah. yeah it, it was, I mean, it was very close to SNCC. But it didn't work in the South. It worked across the country, West Coast as well as East Coast, but not the South. Right. right. And it was inspired somewhat by people who'd been to the South and who felt that this kind of a movement was necessary in, in northern cities. So this film, Troublemakers, is a two-year record of the attempt to organize in Black Newark. Um, we got there... Well, we started filming maybe three or four years after the project had started. Uh, and our entry was the project itself, both the, the white organizers who had come to Newark and the organizers and members who were local out of both the South Ward and the Central Ward in Newark. And so our entry and our access was the work of the mobilizing itself, and we were essentially recording it and trying to um, put together a film. I, I don't want to take too much. That there, We did two little films to prepare for that, um, which we can talk about afterwards. And we were very lucky because um, up until this period in filmmaking, it was very hard to make documentary films with simultaneous sound because the sound equipment was massive and there was also a problem of synchronizing camera and sound. But at the time that we got started, the technical problems had been solved. I, I, I was a, a, a hanger-on, I would say. Uh, I was very interested in the project and what it was trying to do and, and did some research. And at some point, having met Mac over again, I met him in Spain some years ago, suggested the possibility of a film, and we set to work on these two little films. And So, no, I wasn't a filmmaker. Uh, Macover taught me everything I knew. I got involved. Norm and I, I had met Norm a few years earlier in Spain. Uh, we bumped into, I bumped into, I had just gotten back from that visit to Cuba in 1964, and 
was looking for some interesting project to do that had some politics attached to it uh, and didn't expect that I would ever find anything like that that easily, but bumped into Norm on the street in the village. And he said, was I interested in making a film about this organizing project in Newark, New Jersey? And it was just the sort of thing that, that I was looking for. So I said, of course, and that's how all of that started. And we made a couple of short films to use as pilot films and to use for fundraising. And a brief story about that is that uh, we set up a number of screenings and show, to show these shorter films. And we had a screening at the Judson Memorial Church on 4th Street in Greenwich Village uh, and uh, passed a basket around afterwards and collected about $25. And it wasn't clear how this would lead us to... We would have bought one roll of film. Yeah. Um, but there was this man in the back of the room who said, um, I'd like you to come meet me in my office this week. And it, it turned out that he was uh, head of the uh, Civil Rights uh, Commission of the um, uh, uh, National, Council of Churches. National Council of Churches, working out of what we used to call the God Box on Riverside Drive. And sure enough, we met him the next week, and he committed their resources to finding the fun funds for us out of their member den denominations. And they assi he assigned a guy to work with us. And for the rest of the project, anytime we needed money, we would go to Jay Moore, who was, whom he assigned to us, and said, okay, Jay, we're going to have to stop working to raise funds to get in order to get film out of the lab. And he said, no, 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 don't worry. You know, I'll find it for you. And he would raise another $2,000 from the Episcopals. We, we didn't know it, but the National Council of uh, Churches and this, the Civil Rights Commission was looking to make a film about uh, this kind of work in a uh, black neighborhood somewhere in the country. And I think Spike had been there because he'd heard that there were these films out of Newark being shown. I didn't shown. know that, but that's possible, yeah. yeah. So it, it wasn't a serendipitous as it sounds, what was terrific was Spike took one look at the two films and and thought, you have the access that we want. He knew that there was an organizing project in Newark and took a chance on us. The film only cost about $20,000. $20,000. I don't know what that, what that would be worth now, but to us it was, of course, a huge amount of money. But And we shot a lot of footage. There's no question about it. You we know. shot 80 hours of footage for an hour film. But I have no idea what happened to the rest of the footage. A, a chunk of it got lost in the basement in my house in New York when the um, uh, sewer line flooded <laughs> and drowned. But we're pretty sure that there wasn't another movie in there. No. <laughs> Students for a Democratic Society decided that community organizing in urban poverty areas might build a movement for changing this society. In June 1964, several SDS members moved into the Negro area of Newark, New Jersey. By fall, the ex-students and neighborhood residents had established the Newark Community Union Project, NCUP. This film follows some of NCUP's activities during September to November 1965.
any movement, any youth movement, or most youth movements are idealistic in nature, and I think this uh, program is one of the idealistic movements. But I think they came here with the wrong approach. I think they came here with a hostile attitude. It was just a few students at first, and then they, they grew. And uh, this is how they developed this uh, organization to organize people to make uh, changes. Organizing is something other than just, you know, saying the word. It's people getting out into the street and getting in, sitting in people's kitchens and living rooms or in the bedroom, wherever the people are, and talking to them. People realize that a great change will come, but enough to make them realize that people are not dummies and they will not sit back forever and let things go on as they have been going on. What do people in this neighborhood want to change? And I'd really like to hear from about the six women that are sitting there, or seven women or eight women, and from this group over here. Now, what was you the know, question? The question is, what do you want to change? What do you want to change? What is there about this neighborhood that you want to change and that you think you can if we get enough people together? Certain issues have a high emotional uh, quality. They unlock a great deal of energy. And the police brutality was one of those, and certain meetings we had on the rent control bill seemed to be one of those, and they were rolling for a couple of weeks. A lot of the other things we discuss have low emotional energy, or at least it's hard for organizers to find a way to tap them, to make those issues relevant. Now, it seems to me The problems of organizing dominate NCUP staff meetings. Which of the many needs in the neighborhood will most clearly involve people? What kinds of actions bring people together? What actions lead to change? Staff members have ideas, but no firm conclusions. There are no blueprints for community organizing. Instead of blueprints, NCUP members improvise from a set of basic beliefs that the neighborhood needs fundamental change, that those changes can't be imposed from above, that those changes might develop from the needs and actions of people in the community. So NCUP members organize, that is, they work in the neighborhood. They try to reach and involve people who have never been consulted, who feel outside society and irrelevant to power. They provoke discussions about need and the possibility of change. I mean, it's just, see, you got the wrong people upstairs running it for us. It's time that they know that they can be defeated, and it's time we get out and beat them. And this is what's going to change it. When you we get jobs, money, when we can have money to support our children, when we have the money to support our own selves and have homes like everybody else has, we have to live in this, then, yeah, when, and all that stuff. If, if, if we can get everyone to do this, if, how, if, this is a big word. You know what I'm saying? When I go downtown and try to give me a job, and I go down to this unemployment office, you understand? I tell these people, I said, look here, I want a job. I said, I'm not working. I have four children. You know what they tell me? Well, you fill out this little application. I fill it out. You understand? Now they tell me, what are you capable for? I tell them, well, I'm capable for mostly anything. You understand? Because I know I have to say this. Why? Because I know I can't go anywhere and get me a job. See, because I know the reason. You understand? I'm not committing myself by saying well, what is the reason, what ain't the reason, but I'm just going to say I know the reason. Now, what are you doing to me? They say, well, all right, well, you come back tomorrow, and then maybe we might have something for you. You understand? <laughs> now, I come back tomorrow. They tell me to come back next day. Finally, finally. You know what I'll be out there doing? Huh? 
I'll be out there down down the market right here, trying to little trucks, trying to take care of my four children. You understand, and my wife. And this is the things that I'd be doing. If people get together and try to try to change that, then it could, probably could be changed. If everybody get together, we can fight it. But as long as everybody walk on by and don't speak up and don't try to look out for not just themselves, for everybody, the majority, then we would all have a little more than we got right now. Yeah, the better advantage, sure. Amen. When organizers draw out the anger and frustration people feel about conditions in the neighborhood, they also draw out people's doubt and despair about the possibilities for change. People's experience indicates that nothing changes and that the power which controls the neighborhood is immune to anything they could do. Organizers have no easy answers to that doubt and despair. What they argue is the possibility that united action might build power. That if people could come together, decide what issues they wanted to attack and how best to attack them, an effective movement for change might begin in the neighborhood. So organizers try to get people to come to neighborhood meetings, where common problems can be discussed, where people's anger can begin to work. You understand? I am, I am mad when I see my people. They have to live in these damn houses. They have to pay this red pirate. The man don't fix nothing for them. It's no different. The rich man control Nook. And it's, Nook is 52% Negro. 52% Negro. You understand what I'm saying? Now, and 90% of the Negroes are poor. 90%. Now, you got, we got, we got, we got some rich white, or rich, um, colored men's in office, but you know how they got up there, they got, they was whitewashed by a rich white man. And he put them there, he controlled them. That's not a damn thing working but his brains. Nothing but his brains is working right there. There's nothing working for you and me. You understand? Now it's time that we do stuff. Everybody wants to stand around and get on the corner and say, well, let's, let's do something about what's happening to us. But now, there ain't but one way you're going to do it is you and not. You ain't going to do nothing. You can go marching up there with your gun. You can kill one. They're going to kill you. And that's a law. That's a law. That's law's cause. Come up in the paper and say, well, why don't you go back to Africa, Asia, where you're from? We ain't from Africa, Asia. He's from somewhere, too. Where he going back? We're right here. We're going to stay here. We're going to build our place here. And we got to build on a foundation, and we're going to do it. Now, who disagree with it? Now, let's get a big hand for me. I mean, people were in the middle of the hardest work that they'd ever done in their lives. And then we make this film that says, well, you know, Good work, but no cigar. None of this has made any difference. Um, people were, you know, the project that who were our friends and who were close to us were justifiably angry. They didn't see it the way we saw it, right? and they felt like, oh, yeah, w w what a downer. We've spent our lives, I mean, maybe not lives, but a fair amount of time doing this, and then... Uh, on top of everything else, the next chapter is, is where they get involved in an electoral campaign and their guy gets 3% of the vote. Not. You know. Um. The, the film ends with a coda which says, done all this work for all these years and there's no change. Uh, some people think that the methods are wrong and that if the organizing worked differently, they would get better results. 
And then it says, but what if the question of method is irrelevant because the kind of change that the project wants is impossible to achieve in this society? What then should NCOMP and all the people it organizes do? And that's where we wanted to end the film. We wanted to raise the larger question, you know, which are the obvious ones, about the nature of power that controls that neighborhood and what should people do, right? The larger, the SDS as an organization used the film all over the place um, because it raised that question, right? And so in some ways, the farther away you were from the project, the more you were prepared not to be angry at the film because you, it was not your work, right? This is 64 to 66 in Newark. By 1971, there was a black mayor elected the uh, Italian and Irish Democratic Party power over in Newark had been broken, and a whole new generation so of... So that the mayor at the time and the chief of police, who you get to see in the film, both were in jail for tax problems. Yeah. And a whole new generation of black leadership right, essentially ascended to the reins of the city, and a number of people, as Carol said, from the project were part of that. Right. Now, nobody knew that at, at the time, obviously. We, uh, what we knew, um, this is little ship, what, what we knew, I think everybody knew in, in Newark who, who was part of this, was that Newark was going to erupt. Which it did. Which it did a year after. And there was an uprising uh, in which the National Guard was mobilized and some 40, 50 people were killed. Okay, uh, but that fundamentally changed Newark. That also ended as well. the project. Sorry. That also was the end of the project. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting story about why they were in Newark to begin with. At least as far as I remember it, is that the demographic studies that had been done prior to coming to Newark indicated that it was a fifty percent, fifty white, fifty, fifty fifty black white breakdown within the neighborhood. By the time people got there, which was a short time after that demographic study, was they discovered, lo and behold, it's almost it's all black people. And then the question came up, do they stay or don't they stay? And then they started talking to local people, and it turned out that they, there was a level of acceptance. Now, it's not clear that there would have been that, elect, that level of acceptance in some other cities uh, that had a more, a longer period of... Um, uh, away from the South. A lot of the black community in Newark, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, were fairly recent migrants c coming from the South. And so that this was a, there was less of a, if you like, black exclu exclusivity than there might have been in Harlem, for example, where I don't believe in, even in 1965, a bunch of white students could have gone in and gotten very far. I was scared in the neighborhood all the time. And I was scared of the police uh, who hassled us. Right. Um, they, they didn't do what they might have because they weren't quite clear that two white cameramen and photographer might have some connections that would get them into a bit of hot water if they actually threw us in jail. But, but I mean, the tension on the streets 
between the police, who were really an occupying force, uh, and the people who lived in the neighborhood, was palpable. You could cut it with a knife. And I was only happy when I was in people's houses and not on, on the street where I felt totally vulnerable, especially since we were carrying the goddamn equipment I was on our shoulders. I was fearless at the time. I think I was much less sophisticated than you were. <laughs> no, I'm scared by it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there is an interesting sidelight to that, is that it, um, we were in uh, this bar in the, in the Central Ward, which was going to be the, sed the headquarters for the election campaign, and we'd gone in, we'd been in a short time kind of making arrangements to come back and film the election night there. And all of our equipment was in the van outside. We came outside and it was all gone. And, uh, you know, we panicked and freaked out and we went back inside the bar and we said somebody ripped off all of our equipment and so on and so forth. It was all rented as well. I mean, we didn't own it. So. Right. And then in an amazing short time, I don't remember what, it all came back to us because somebody p passed the word around that these were cool guys, that you shouldn't take their equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think, I, I think, we, were, I think we were interested in finding a true story. We were interested in telling the truth, not to make a propaganda film, not to make a film that would make people feel you know, heroic, or that um, I think we wanted to make a film that was both sympathetic to the, to the project and its goals and its purposes, and at the same time was realistic about the world that it was operating in. And that therefore the, the final statement, which was not something that we discussed before starting the film, but was clear at a certain point, when we got to the point of ending the film, that that's really what we were doing. That's what we wanted to do. That we wanted to make a film that showed that the issues were systemic, not just local. I grew up in Camden, New Jersey, which when I grew up was at least a half black city. And it was, uh, a familiar kind of city. The streets in the white sections were paved. Black sections were dirt streets. This is not the South. Right? So I knew a little bit. Right? And what I felt in the months that I was in Newark before we started the film was that um, people should see what can... I don't know how to put this. People should see the, the level of conditions and the level of sheer oppression that black people are living in in northern cities. And I thought that the project was a lens that would unlock that for people. Right. So, I mean, we were trying to tell a story, but underneath that, what we wanted to get at was, what is the nature of this situation in the U.S. in 1965? And many years hence in lots of ways. I mean, the, 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 the degree to which, in a sense, nothing changed. Uh, and that's many, many years ago. And many of the same issues yep. persist.
America has heard the bugle call. Be sure to check out the exhibition Free Education at Interference Archive through January 27th, 2019. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.